Hello, podcast world, and welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Today I want to unpack the Old Testament passages that speak to same-sex relationships. But before we get there, there are a couple of other things that I would like to say. I've been thinking a lot about the why, as in the why for this series. Is it just educational? Is it an attempt to change people's minds, to win the debate, as it were? Is it just to relieve my own guilt for my own wrong beliefs and the damage it may have caused? To be honest, maybe it's a bit of all that, but there are two things that really stick out for me. The first is to answer the question, how do we love better? I hope it's a question that no matter where you stand on this issue, you would be willing to engage with. I don't think it would be an untrue generalization to say that the LGBTQIA community doesn't feel loved by Christians. Certainly the ones that I know or who I have spoken to don't feel loved by us, and there is something desperately wrong with that picture. Our number one calling as Christians is to love. I'm sure everybody knows about the five love languages, right? We've all learned that it's not about our love language, but it's about our partner's love language. We need to know their love language so that we know how to love them better. So when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community, how do we love them better? Jesus didn't say that the world will know that you're my followers by how much theology you get right, or by what you believe or what you don't believe. Jesus didn't say they will know you're my followers because you call out the sin in people, because you don't back down. To love better is our greatest calling as followers of Jesus, and that is the why behind this podcast series. So please keep that in mind when you listen to these podcasts. See if there's anything in here that might help you love your friends and family who are gay or lesbian or bi or trans or queer or intersexual or asexual or anything else that might seem weird or maybe wrong to you. How do you love them better? That's what I'm hoping I can learn as I talk to more and more people around these issues. My second why is to bring hope. Hope to people that are LGBTQIA and feel like there's something wrong with them because that's what their church or their Christian friends have told them. Hope for parents whose children have come out and they don't know how to respond. Hope for families who suspect one of their children are gay or trans or whatever, and they're trying to navigate those waters in a way that's positive and loving and nurturing. Hope for pastors who want to be more affirming but are afraid of the cost. Hope for you, wherever you are, on this journey. 
Now, before I get into some specifics about Scripture, um, which I know is what a lot of people are waiting for, just humor me a moment. I need to give just a, maybe two disclaimers, okay, maybe three disclaimers really quickly. First of all, I'm sure quite a few of you don't need to unpack each of these six verses of Scripture. Your view of the Bible is such that looking at the Hebrew words or the Greek words just doesn't matter that much. You see the overall narrative of the Bible as being inclusive of everybody, no matter what, and that's enough for you. And I'm with you on that, and I'm going to make that argument a little later on in this series. But for some, the haunting questions remain. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Or what about Romans chapter 1? I get it. In fact, personally, I needed to do that work first before I got to understand the overall arch of inclusivity of Scripture. So if you don't need all this Hebrew, Greek stuff, that's absolutely fine. My second disclaimer is that we're only going to touch on the surface of all that could be spoken of. I'm in the process of trying to put together a list of resources that you can study further. I would suggest that one of the ways that we love our LGBTQ friends and family better is to do the work, to read and to study, as opposed to just burying our heads in the sand and saying, oh, well, we just don't believe that. For many of us, this change is a journey. And I can only point you on the road. The journey is yours to take. The third disclaimer is this. I'm not a theological expert. I probably know just enough to be dangerous. But I've read and I've studied this for a lot of years now and come to a new conclusion. Basically, I'm just sharing with you why I've changed my mind in the hopes that it'll help you see things differently and in turn to love better. Okay, all that as an intro, now let's just jump into these three Old Testament passages. I guess the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is as good a place as any to start. There is a parallel story in Judges 19, which is even a bit weirder. Um, but because it's pretty much the same story, I'm not going to worry about that one too much. The Sodom and Gomorrah story is very famous, and it's been weaponized against the gay community so often. So let me recap the story. Lot who was the nephew of Abraham, was living in Sodom with his family. God was planning to destroy the city because he had heard how bad it was. So he sent angels to visit and check it out. Lot met these angels. He didn't know they were angels at the time. And he offered them food and shelter for the night. But when the men of the city found out, they surrounded the house and demanded that Lot send the two strangers out and they were going to gang rape them. Lot wouldn't do it. But, and this is where the story gets really weird, he offers his two young daughters in their place. You've got to be kidding me. Lot offers his daughters to be gang raped 
and he's rewarded for that? Clearly, the Old Testament doesn't have a very high view of women. The men were much more important than the women, so gang-raping them would not be as bad as gang-raping the men. So anyway, the story goes on that God strikes all of the men of the city blind so they can't find the door to the house and they eventually just leave. Nobody gets raped. The next day, God destroyed the city, but Lot and his family are saved. For as long as I can remember, what has been taught was that Sodom and Gomorrah were evil primarily because of their homosexual behavior. I mean, there was other stuff going on, but it was the homosexuality that stood out. And, and so, like Sodom and Gomorrah, God will judge all homosexual behavior. Sodom and Gomorrah were the, like, gold standard of God's feelings and response to homosexuality. But this isn't a story of sexual orientation or even sexual attraction. This is a story of attempted gang rape. This was an assault on strangers, on foreigners in the land. This was pure xenophobia. They didn't want to make love to these men. They wanted to assault and humiliate them. There are 13 references to the Sodom and Gomorrah story in the Old Testament after Genesis 19. In a number of places, it speaks to the sin of these cities, but never once does it speak to the issue of homosexuality. Isaiah chapter 1, for example, describes the sins of Sodom of being that of injustice, of oppressing marginalized groups like orphans and widows. They were accused of corruption and murder, but never homosexuality. Jeremiah declared that the adultery and idolatry and power abuses of the religious made them just like Sodom. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 to 9, probably gives the most detailed description of the sins of Sodom. It says this, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Okay, so you say it says abominable things. True, it does. But we certainly can't just assume that was homosexuality. According to the Old Testament, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were sins of injustice. But what about the New Testament? Well, this story comes up eight times in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself speaks of it twice, Matthew 10 and in Luke 10. And in both of these passages, Jesus speaks of inhospitality as the sins of Sodom. In fact, he says that the cities that don't welcome his disciples will suffer the same fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. 
Then there are two passages in the New Testament that do speak of the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the only two in the whole Bible. One of those is in 2 Peter. Peter speaks of Lot as a righteous man, greatly distressed by the debauchery of the lawless. And then a couple of verses down, he talks about those who indulge their flesh in depraved lust. The NIV says they indulge in the corrupt desire of the flesh. Now, none of that is exclusively homosexual behavior. Heterosexuals are quite able to indulge in flesh-depraved lust. Then there's a little passage in the book of Jude. I mean, it's a weird passage that seems to refer back to Genesis 6 and the flood, where supposedly women were having sex with angels and other weird stuff was going on. Nobody really understands this passage, and it speaks to sexual immorality and perversion. But again, it's not exclusively homosexual. We heterosexuals are quite capable of sexual immorality and perversion. All of that to say this. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not about sensual sexual sin. Rape is never about sensual sex. It's about power. It's about exploitation. That is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It has nothing to do with committed self-sacrificing same-sex relationships. The other two Old Testament passages that speak to this issue of same-sex relations are both found in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, 22 and chapter 20, verse 13. So let's start with the chapter 18, 22 verse. Here's what it says. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Some would say, okay, there it is. End of discussion. Drop the mic. Walk off the stage. But maybe it's not quite that simple. First of all, we have to look at the context of what is going on here. This is in the part of the book of Leviticus that theologians call the holiness code. Holiness in this context means to be separate or to be set apart. Israel is surrounded by nations that worship other gods than the god Yahweh that the Israelites worship. The holiness code is about how to worship and, and even more importantly, how not to worship. Other gods were worshipped often by erotic sexual practices and massive orgies, sex with animals, and if things were really bad and they really wanted to get the gods' attention, child sacrifice. It's pretty horrible to think about. The holiness code is like God saying, you don't have to worship like that. In fact, don't worship like that. I'm calling you to something new, to something different. The word abomination that is used in verse 22 is another word that has been weaponized against the gay community way too often. 
The Hebrew word is tova. It's used 117 times in the Old Testament. And almost every time, the word refers to different idolatrous practices of the nation surrounding Israel. Which leads many Old Testament scholars to believe that this word tova or abomination is not a term of ethics, but rather what they call a term of boundary marking. It's about being separate. So that's the context of both these verses in Leviticus. Don't worship like the other nations do. You see this very clearly in the first few verses of chapter 18. You can go read it. And then after those verses, there's this long list of things that are prohibited in worship for the people of Yahweh. It includes having sex with your mother or your aunt or your horse and a whole lot more. And then included in that list is verse 22. Sometimes when people question my views in the Bible, um, they make some kind of statement about picking and choosing. Like, do we just pick verses that we like and the ones we don't like we leave out? I would suggest we do that all the time. And this is a great example. Because that list that I was talking about also includes having sex with your wife while she's having her period. It includes things like not having tattoos or charging interest on a loan or trimming your beard or having a shirt with two kinds of materials or planting two kinds of seeds in the same field. And the list goes on and on. Now, we understand today that these lists are the Old Covenant. And according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, we live in the New Covenant. We are not bound by the law. There have been all kinds of gymnastics by theologians trying to say that some of the Old Testament law we keep and some we don't. Often it's divided by ceremonial law and moral law. Anything that is ceremonial law, like the sacrifice of animals, that's out. But anything that is moral law, things like homosexuality, that stays in. I guess that could make sense on the surface. The only problem is that there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. We just made that up. It's just another way of picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like. We all do it. When you get to chapter 20 then, it starts to give the punishment for breaking these rules. And here's the verse that's part of what we're talking about. Chapter 20. It says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them committed an abomination, they shall be put to death. Okay, that's quite harsh. But it's not the only thing that receives the death penalty. If a priest's daughter falls into prostitution, she should be burned at the stake. Anybody that uses the Lord's name in vain should be reprimanded and then stoned. A rebellious son should also be stoned. In Exodus, 
working on the Sabbath was a criminal offense that was punishable by death, as was anyone who charged interest on a loan. I guess that's enough said about that. There's one more point about all this that's important to understand in these passages as well as in the New Testament passages that we're going to get into next time. The idea of sexual orientation or even of sexual attraction was not understood at all by these writers. It just wasn't a thing. Homosexual practice was always understood as heterosexual men engaging in erotic, perverse, obscene, over-the-top sexual activity in the context of temple worship or as a means of assault and humiliation. That is what these verses are talking about. Again, I'm not suggesting that it's not condemning this kind of erotic sexual activity. It is. But it's not talking about anything close to what we define as LGBTQIA+. And if that's the case, then we can't use these verses to condemn all same-sex relationships. What I've come to understand is that they just don't apply, and therefore they need to be taken out of the argument. But we can't just leave it there. There are three passages in the New Testament that we need to deal with as well. And let me give you just a little bit of an introduction because that's where I'm going to go next episode. In the Greek and the Roman world, there was same-sex activity outside of the temple worship that we see in the Old Testament. But it's always men having sex with someone of a lower status or position. So it was men having sex with boys, which was very common in both Rome and Greece. It was men having sex with their slaves who were men. There was never equality in those relationships. And the biggest problem with same-sex relationships in the New Testament was that one of the men had to act like a woman and that was unacceptable. We'll also talk about the word homosexual that you'll find in most of our modern translations. That word was only introduced to English versions of the Bible in 1946. Before that, the word that was translated now as homosexuality was translated as sodomy or pederasty. It's all quite fascinating, and we're going to get into all of that the next time. I have really loved hearing from so many of you over these past few episodes, and I would love to hear from more of you. If you have questions, or if you disagree with something I've said, or you just want to share your story, I would love to engage with you around these issues. All of my social media details, as well as my email, are in the show notes below. And you can find them on my website at skipcollins.com. Also, if you can help support this work financially, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash skipcollins.
Anything you can do would be incredibly helpful. It works off a reoccurring charge on your credit card so you can do it from anywhere in the world and you can stop it at any time you want. It's really quite simple. I would be deeply grateful for any help you can give. And so until next time, Shalom.